Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of September 22nd, 2014. On this week's show, ESPN's Jane McManus will join us for the latest installment of Roger Goodell and the NFL and the Ravens and Everyone and Everything Are Terrible, and she will tell us what it's been like to report on domestic violence in pro football. We'll also talk about Florida State's decision to suspend Jameis Winston for a game and U.S. soccer's move to keep Hope Solo on the field. Grantland's Ben Lindbergh will be here to talk about baseball's pennant races, what to look for in the last week of the regular season and the playoffs. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about the dying embers of the Derek Jeter farewell tour and whether said tour is hurting the Yankees and hurting America. Joining me in Washington, D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. With us in New York is Mike Pesca, the host of The Gist with Mike Pesca. Hello, Mike. Your, your enthusiasm was flagging for a second. Mine was? I think I threw him off because I didn't engage in banter. 
Well, I'll tell you. So we can't see each other now, so you can't see that I'm wearing a shirt that I call the color, I call it irradiated goldfish. Okay. All right. Give us a little bit more to work with. All right. Well, uh, it was one of the last days I could wear um, a short sleeve polo shirt, but that doesn't mean I should wear this particular short sleeve polo shirt. Well, you just did about this last week. You talked about taking a lousy piece of clothing with you on the flight. So yeah, this was the one I left on home. <laughs> the one that you didn't take on your last trip. <laughs> it's not lousy. It's very sound. The stitching is nice. You would look at it and you would say, it's got a tiny little horse uh, on the chest. You would look at it and say, that is a good shirt if it weren't the color of what you would do if you were trying to illustrate a cartoon salmon who was swimming too close to a nuclear reactor. Well, I think I saw that on a Simpsons episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not all, not all shirts can succeed at all metrics of shirt on success. On all levels. That's right. Um, we have a live show coming up on October 8th. There's still some tickets available. It's at Galapagos in Brooklyn. Uh, it's in Williamsburg, specifically. It's part of New York Super Week. It's an extension of Comic-Con. You can get your tickets at slate.com slash hangupsuperweek. I guess the fact that we're doing this show means officially that Williamsburg is over, I think, Mike. Is that right? Williamsburg, done. It's done. Be there. Be there yes. for Williamsburg's final act on October 8th. And you get a discount on your ticket if you're a Slate Plus member. So be a Slate Plus member. You'll get a discount. Slate.com slash hangupsuperweek. In a news conference on Friday, his first public appearance since September 10th, Roger Goodell apologized for the NFL's handling of the Ray Rice case, saying that he got it wrong on a number of levels. But to say that the commissioner apologized isn't to say that he looked or sounded like a human being, because he did not. Though it's kind of dumb that we grade people on their self-presentation as much as their actions, Goodell hasn't given us much else to go on in the last month or so. In this public display, he came off as a CEO automaton who deflected any conversation about specifics in favor of bland generalities. Then a few hours after that press conference, ESPN's Don Van Natta and Kevin Van Valkenburg came out with a news story, which they reported that the Ravens' head of security knew what was in the Rice Elevator video almost immediately, that Ravens brass tried to suppress the evidence, that Baltimore coach John Harbaugh wanted Rice to be released from the jump but was overruled, and that once the video became public, the Ravens did a total 180, claimed to be shocked and outraged, and in the background, owner Steve Bashotti texted, Rice to say he had a job with the Ravens once he was done with football. Joining us now to talk about all this is Jane McManus of ESPN. Uh, She covers the Jets for ESPNNewYork.com. She writes for ESPNW. You might know her as Roller Derby's Leslie Eviscerate. Jane, thanks for being with us. Hi, happy to be here. You've been doing um, amazing reporting on the NFL and domestic violence in the Rice case specifically for ESPN. And one of the things that I thought was missing from this press conference was any acknowledgement from Goodell that domestic violence existed as an issue for the league before the Ray Rice case. Yes, or that the reason that he could point to consistency as a reason to give the two-game suspension is because the NFL has consistently lowballed domestic violence as a criminal issue. I think the problem, one of the problems with this is that it shines a spotlight on the league now and makes it seem as though statistically there's more of a likelihood for an NFL player to commit a violent act of assault. But I don't know that that's necessarily the truth. I don't think that we have statistics to back that up yet. So unfortunately, this entire situation and the way that it's been handled, I think, has cast a bit of an unfair spotlight on some players because the league went so far 
to give Cush punishments. Well, another reason they could cite consistency is that Joe Van Belcher took the penalty decision out of Goodell's hands by killing himself after he killed his girlfriend. And of all the galling things, just the lack of mention of Cassandra Perkins and the fact that we should have had this conversation in a massive way a year ago, very, very little acknowledgement of that. That's a great point. And I, I think, you know, this is another thing that I've said is that You know, the NFL owners, the team owners have so much to say about this. And if at that moment, you know, after that moment in the Kansas City parking lot, the team owners had said domestic violence is an issue we should get a grip on, there would have been no problem getting a grip on it right then. But they didn't. And that's ownership as well is is responsible as well as Roger Goodell. Remember how that was framed, though? Think back. It was about how many people on a team have access to a psychologist. It was about the psychological toll of football. It was very little about It was also about guns. And it was, yeah, it was about guns. It was about the controversy over should we honor the guy. It was about 10 things before it was about domestic violence. And I think that goes to a lot of things, but it goes to the fact that it's an entirely male-dominated culture. You don't even think about the woman. Well, it's easy, and I think that this has come out also, it's very easy to dismiss victims or to not give them a voice. I mean, obviously, in Cassandra Perkins' case, you couldn't give her a voice because she'd been murdered. But in a lot of these things, I talked to Jen Sturger, who had been subject of an NFL investigation because of the Brett Favre pictures, and or alleged Brett Favre pictures that were on Deadspin. And she said that she didn't see another woman in another room, in any of the rooms in the NFL when she went to go discuss or be interrogated about this issue. She said it was, you know, a bunch of older men who were talking to her about very sexually explicit materials. It was very uncomfortable for her from the beginning. And I think this is the thing. It's very easy to protect your players. That is who you're trying to protect. So in any of these NFL investigations or investigations by the team, and, I, you know, obviously this is borne out by some of Don Van Natta's reporting and Kevin Falkenberg's reporting on this, is it's easy to protect the team, much easier than it is to get victim uh, a victim justice. And I think a lot of this gets folded into this idea that this is a sports problem. And it's really not a sports problem. It's a football problem. And it's because the culture of football is so patriarchal. I mean, when you, you think about the, the first 95 years of the NFL, it is completely male-dominated. The notion that we're courting female fans, it becomes a sort of sum and substance, the totality of football's relationship with women. This idea that, you know, women are the decision makers in households. I mean, the NFL actually last week in the middle of this had the audacity to trot out two men in an article I read in the New York Times about this issue of why it's important to regain the trust of women. And it's because they make decisions and they they buy stuff and they they decide what their kids play. They're definitely interested in women as as dollars. Right. But not necessarily. I mean, you can look down the line. Underpaying cheerleaders. I mean, the NFL understands money. Having cheerleaders. Having cheerleaders. But $44.2 million a year for Roger Goodell in 2012, and and NFL cheerleaders are making sub-minimum wage, or or that's the allegation in several lawsuits. So to me, that you can't even have a policy, a league-wide policy, and I've I've asked several times the league about this, and they declined to to respond to it, but that you can't somehow have a league-wide policy just to pay your cheerleaders a minimum wage, to pay them for the time that they're practicing, to compensate them for their uniform, and for other job-related expenses. I mean, this is, even now, even today, with all of the news that comes out, even this is not a topic that they're willing to discuss. So let's talk about specifically what it's been like to report on the Ray Rice story. You said over the summer that two league sources told you that the NFL had access 
to the same evidence as the prosecutors. And that has been contradicted by Roger Goodell and by league officials since then. Just first to be clear, when you say that the NFL had access to the same evidence as the prosecutors, does that mean the videotape? I asked about the videotape. At the time, I was told that they had access to the same evidence as the prosecutors. I specifically went back and said, does that include the interior elevator tape? Because that is something that the prosecutors are reported to have. And I, instead of getting a specific answer to that question, I would get the reiteration, we have access to the same evidence that the prosecutors do. Now, I don't know if, you know, they were trying to spin me at that moment to say to me, well, you know, you have to understand we've given this lower penalty knowing, you know, with the idea that they knew more than they were willing to say publicly. So I can't discount that possibility. But it was very clear to me that that was what they were saying at the time, and that was the message at the time. Now, subsequent to that, they've come out and said, well, we never had, you know, we never had access to that. And I've gone back to my sources and pressed them on that and uh, told them that it's a complete contradiction. And, and Don Van Atta reported that a Ravens guy in the, uh, in the hotel, department. yeah, a Ravens fan in the hotel security department immediately called or got in touch with the Ravens PR people and described it to well, him. And, and, and we have exactly. you know, people at, at ESPN who were able to describe the video back in the summer. Um, yeah. You know, Mort's one of them. He, he described what was in that video, and, and he was quoting league sources for that. So clearly, I think what's happened with the video isn't exactly clear, and maybe this internal investigation will help ferret out a little bit more about what was spin, who had it, who wasn't showing it to the people that needed to see it, you know. That kind of thing. You know, I, I wrote a piece for Slate last week, and I talked to um, a former journal colleague, Wall Street Journal colleague of mine named Dean Starkman, who's just written a book about Wall Street and the media. And I asked him specifically, if sources burn you on something like this, at what point does it become journalistically okay to out them, to put pressure on an institution like the NFL for potentially misleading? Has that been a conversation that you've had with your editors at ESPN? No, it's not. I think in this situation, it's pretty clear that the NFL has done a lot wrong here. So I don't think that I need to necessarily bring that to light. I want to talk about the role of female journalists. Now, in a widely disseminated video, Katie Nolan of Fox said, we need more female journalists. But this was sort of um, imperfect messenger insofar as in the video itself, she blew the whistle on herself saying she got intimidated from asking Roger Goodell a hard question for fear, among other things, that it would, be, it would seem impolitic given Fox's relationship with the NFL. And this okay. was not to be clear, Mike, at the press conference last week. This was earlier. Yes, this was earlier. I've also counted the number of powerful females, three owners or acting owners, obviously no one at the senior vice president level of the NFL, some people in the front office, but at lower vice president levels, and some, a few women in front offices. It winds up maybe being 1% of the power. Decision makers in the NFL are women. How much would more women in either reporting or power-making circles make a difference? Well, I think that it's not just having a number of women. It's having them in the meetings. It's giving them a voice. It's paying them well. And it's also giving them access to a budget and control over that budget. I think those are all things that would make a difference. So it's great that they've, they've hired 
Anna Isaacson to be their VP of social responsibility, and they have three other women who are going to be kind of in charge of, of domestic violence and the, league, the way that the league looks at personal conduct. And I think that's, that's good. That's a good start. But these women have to be decision makers. They have to be able to be listened to. And I think that was more the problem. And Roger Goodell said on, on Friday when he had this press conference that, you know, he, he was asked specifically, did you have a woman in the room when you were making the decision, you know, about how many games to to give Ray Rice. And, you know, it's not necessarily that it has to be a woman, but certainly somebody who's vetted in domestic violence as an issue, as a societal issue, what the dynamics are behind it. And he said, well, we didn't have the right voices in there. And, yeah. and I wonder how many meetings are like that. How many meetings at the NFL are, we have 30% of this office is staffed by women, but none of them are really in the key meetings. So I wonder about that. I think that is where the change has to happen. It has to be people are listened to. And I think the same thing is true with women in sports media. You know, hopefully Katie has opened some doors for herself by being um, as outspoken as she has. And she raised a lot of good points. I, I don't fault her at all for, I mean, you know, another reporter might have said, you know, I didn't speak up in front of Roger Goodell. I better not say anything about this because it'll make me look like a hypocrite. But uh, so I applaud her for going and, and being truthful and, and still saying what she said. To me, it was an important voice. The fact that we're even writing stories about how interesting it is that there are women involved in the coverage of this or taking prominent roles in this. And there's a very good piece about that in the New York Times this morning is in itself shocking, I think, Jane. I mean, women have been voices in sports journalism for since, you know, since the 1970s, powerfully. The idea that this is somehow shocking to fans of the National Football League says a lot about the National Football League. It's true, but our voices haven't always been as as prominently displayed as they have been in the last few weeks. Correct. And and I think that the Mahler piece in the Times makes a good point is that women are often used to provide quick information on a sideline or as facilitators, as conversation between male analysts. You know, it's interesting because on Friday for the Goodell press conference, I went up to Bristol to do reaction and was literally given a seat at the table. (laughs) And, you know, that was a new experience for me. But the fact of the matter is, I think we have to stay at the table right now. I think you were the first first one to talk after the press conference. That's true. Thank you for mentioning that. It was Um, awesome. Tell my my bosses. (laughs) (laughs) We just did. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, you know, and there are a lot of other voices. And I, I think that those voices need to remain there. Because the fact of the matter is, just like I can talk about domestic violence, I've been covering football since, you know, 2008. And Kate Fagan, who's a colleague of mine at ESPNW, played Division One basketball and, you know, can talk about the WNBA or the NBA equally well as she can talk about domestic violence. The fact of the matter is, these issues may be more familiar to us. And it's, it's smart for media organizations to have us be able to talk about it. Because in some ways, we may be more familiar with it either personally or because we pay attention to these issues where some of our male colleagues kind of turn off when you say off-the-field issue or distraction, uh, whereas that's when, when my ears are, are peaked and I'm wondering, you know, what's going on. Jane, uh, thank you very much for being with us. We'll have you back sometime. We may talk about the Jets. We may talk about roller derby. We didn't get into it. Oh, excellent. I would love to talk to you about career. roller derby. Champions coming up. Leslie, <laughs> <laughs> Leslie Viserate. That's, you know, a good name to honor, and does she know? To honor a colleague. Oh, yeah, I, had, I had to clear it with her. Are you kidding me? I, uh, <laughs> I actually sent her a picture of me with, with my name uh, you know, on the back of my jersey, and she used it as a screensaver for All right, you got 30 seconds. Give us your roller derby creds and your pitch. Go. Well, the height of my roller derby career was at the Jersey Shore. We were playing <laughs> on, the, on the boardwalk, Asbury Park. It was my suburbia roller derby team versus... Uh, versus Jersey Shore, and I scored 99 points as a jammer that night, and we won. And when we were done, 
we took off our skates and we ran into the ocean. That's the <laughs> best moment ever. Wow. The, that's yeah. how the movie is going to end. I know, exactly right. I also like how Hannah Storm has used her roller derby name on air. On air. That's I'm awesome. For that, that's yeah. Wait, it's not just Hannah Storm? Did she even have to change it? Yeah, really. No, she that was the joke. joke. That was the joke. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That's okay, Mike. Uh, all right, Jane. Bad. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me. All right, a quick word about our membership program, Slate Plus. You can sign up for $5 a month at slate.com slash hangupplus. You can get ad-free versions of your favorite Slate podcast and also podcast extras. And we had a great one last week, Seth Stevenson's interview with chess superstar Fabiano Caruana, who Seth watched destroy the competition at the Sinkfield Cup in St. Louis. Everyone should also read Seth's article about Caruana and Magnus Carlsen the crazy sportocrat who runs the international chess governing body and believes the game was invented by extraterrestrials. He's going to be on the uh, Culture Fest this week. We had to fight tooth and <laughs> Seth nail. Is. Seth is. Yeah. Seth, not the head of FIDE. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. We lost. We lost in the in the battle for Seth. You were yeah. very hurt by that. I wonder if soccer, which Seth Blatter, of course, says someday will be played interplanetarily. <laughs> I wonder if they'll play on the same planet where chess was invented. That would be amazing. Oh, chess football, that'd be awesome. Um, so read Seth's story, ponder the great intergalactic questions that it raises. Listen to the bonus interview on Slate Plus. You can become a member at slate.com slash hangupplus. All right, now on to a segment that I'm going to call, What Should Be Done About These People? These people are Florida State quarterbacks Jameis Winston and U.S. national team goalkeeper Hope Solo. So there is a lot of backstory on both of these individuals. So let's first start with Winston. We'll get to Solo later in the segment. Um, Last week, according to ESPN.com, the Florida State quarterback was seen shouting an obscene sexual phrase on campus. We are not shy about profanity here at Hang Up and Listen, but if you are personally shy about profanity, you might want to step away from your earbuds right now if the kids are listening. So we can tell you that the phrase was the not very subtle, fuck her right in the pussy which is a dumb viral internet thing. It started with a video of a fake news blooper in which an actor playing a reporter says the phrase, it's stupid. Winston, the reigning Heisman Trophy winner with a bad sense of humor, was originally suspended for the first half of Florida State's game against Clemson. The quarterback apologized for his selfish act. But then the school announced on Friday that Winston was actually suspended for the whole game. Fox Sports' Bruce Feldman reported that the school found a discrepancy with his account of where he was standing when he said the obscenities, which is a very strange explanation. He said he was on a chair, but he was actually on a table. It kind of defies belief. Um, Regardless, Winston sat out the game, but he was omnipresent on the sidelines during ABC's broadcast. Um, FSU beat Clemson in overtime. And now you've got stories like the one in the Orlando Sentinel that says, Florida State had survived, not just the game, but the tumultuous week. It was tumultuous. <laughs> it was tumultuous. And I've got the whole Jameis Winston timeline here. Questioned after a BB gun battle, claimed that he stole soda from a fast food restaurant, oh, alleged sexual assault, accused of shoplifting crab legs, and then yelled obscene praise. There's a little bit of one of these things is not like the other, and it just seems insane that this is the thing that he gets suspended for. So how should we feel about the decision by Florida State, Mike Pesca? That's not only a stupid thing to say for a person or a human. You know, the rape charges, maybe he doesn't think the rape charges hang over his head. Not rape charges, the alleged sexual assault that wasn't fully 
investigated properly as documented by the New York Times. Anyway, he maybe he doesn't think it's a shadow, but because he's live, either living his own life or 21 years old and kind of clueless, all that stuff. But yeah, like, how, how could you say that? Is that just a stupid, crass thing that you could imagine any one of hundreds of people saying if Johnny Manziel said it, that would just be, I guess, in keeping with, okay, that's Johnny Manziel being a kind of idiot. You know, how could how could Jameis Winston say this in public and not think that there'd be consequences? Maybe it's because, hey, the school reacts by deciding to set him down for a series and then a quarter and then a half. And then finally, it's like, all right, fine, we'll actually suspend them for a game. So... I really think that I don't know. I, I'm, you know, for it to count, you'd have to have, you'd have to have all the rumors come NFL uh, draft time. You'd have to hear people discounting him for character issues. I don't know if we're going to hear that. Knock him down on Mel's big board. Yeah, I think it already did. Did down. He on fell the big to board? like 25th wow. on the big board. Wow. I came into this. Consequences n- are severe. I came into this not really knowing what I thought about this because it seems stupid on all possible levels. It seems stupid that he was suspended for this because I can't imagine any other player in all of college football who would get suspended for saying something dumb in the student union. Then again, he's obviously a special case because he's an alleged rapist. Then again, doing it for a half game and then increasing it to a game because he was like standing in a different place. That seems stupid. But I think just the fact that this guy is in college football seems stupid. Seems stupid. Like I think it kind of gets, it all gets back to that, that, he, you know, won the Heisman Trophy, incredibly famous dude who could be playing in the pros now. And wouldn't have been in a student union. And wouldn't have been in the student union. But goes back to college, maybe shouldn't be on a, a college team because of what he supposedly did. It just, everything kind of gets back to, like, this is a person who should not be where he is, both specifically in the student union and more generally playing college football. It all just seems wrong and terrible, Stefan. And it's also about what not only universities, but sports culture are willing to tolerate. At what point do you just say, you know what? There are a lot of good football players. We don't need this one. This guy's had like seven strikes. You know, yes, there's the due process argument. There's the everyone gets an opportunity to to pursue their career. But at some point, people make decisions about in athletics. And those decisions can be, we want this person around or we don't want this person around. We want to pay this person millions of dollars. We don't want to pay this person millions of dollars. There's a cowardice that runs through sports. And that's not to say that everyone who is accused of a crime or convicted of a crime or is punished for a crime should not be able to pursue his career. But These aren't rights. I mean, we talk about this a lot. Florida State University gets to decide whether an athlete gets and keeps a scholarship. The National Football League gets to decide whether to draft and hire and pay and play an athlete. Now, clearly, though, Florida State is not going to jettison its Heisman Heisman Trophy winner who brought him to a perfect season, who is the most important person to play for their team since Deion Sanders and maybe Bowden himself. I do think that when, you, when you're going through, you know, the litany of not even everyone who's a convicted of a crime or served time for a crime. But what we want from all those people is an honest request of redemption. And even with Ray Lewis involved as he was in a murder, I know he wasn't charged with a murder and he didn't murder anyone, but there were all those circumstances. Even he, though 
now speaks f- about it quite inartfully. Even he went on some sort of journey. We could argue the legitimacy of it, but it seemed that he was a bit transformed and became a different person, at least publicly. Maybe the way Ray Lewis did it was all we can ask. I don't get the sense that Jameis Winston thinks that he has anything to apologize for. And that's what galls me. And that's what this episode shows. I could put it in the category of dumb college kids saying dumb college things, but I instead put it in the category a guy who is clueless about other people's perceptions of him and more importantly what his responsibility should be in you know owning up to his past bad decisions criminal or not his past bad decisions the people he, he's hurt and all the things that he's done that go on the negative side of the ledger it doesn't seem to have any knowledge of that whatsoever well two things this made me think about and we've talked about this before about how different kinds of evidence affect perceptions and affect repercussions So with the sexual assault, with those charges, you know, being far the most serious kind of shows our societal problem with, you know, belief and with what is considered proof and what is considered evidence and how you can kind of skate along and get by and say that it it didn't happen if there's not, you know, a video of something. And then you have somebody standing up and saying something in a cafeteria that's like basically innocuous, like it harms no one. I guess it just seems like in really poor taste and seems bad given his history. But it's like tweeted about incessantly by other students of Florida State. And so it becomes it's it's offensive, though, It is whether it's a meme or not, it's offensive. But it becomes undeniable in this way that a school is forced to act despite its relative lack of seriousness compared to other things. So it's just the disconnect between what is serious and what is undeniable is what's galling. And then the other thing that's really galling about this is that when he's on the sidelines and ABC shows him 48 times and, you know, Herb Street and Fowler talk about him 60 times, not all positively, of course, but he is more visible, like his helmet isn't on. He's somehow more of a presence in that game when he was supposed to be gone and out of our faces than he was kind of in any other game. Like you can see him, you can look at it, you know, football players, you know, even quarterbacks, even famous ones, you kind of don't know what they look like. You can't really get a sense of their facial expressions. In this game, we saw him celebrating with his teammates. You saw him like seem like he's not taking the suspension like very hard. He's like really happy and celebrating their victory in overtime and then you hear about how the team has overcome everything like what kind of punishment is that can we uh, correct i can't remember i I can't remember has he been ever been he was suspended from the baseball team for For the crab leg for stealing crab legs are they crab legs or crab's legs for stealing crab legs (laughs) that's the important point (laughs) has he ever been suspended from the football team before no this was the first so he's been suspended for crab's legs and for shouting well, something in a cafeteria, but not that, for yeah, food, anything else that food, we know about what he's done in the his The food life. service is really his bet noir. All right, let's talk about Hope Solo. Over the summer, the goalkeeper for the U.S. national team was charged with domestic violence after allegedly punching her sister and nephew at a party. In a column in the New York Times over the weekend, Juliette Masur argued that by allowing Solo to play while she awaits the resolution of her legal case... U.S. soccer is turning a blind eye toward domestic violence. And I'm quoting here, the glaring contrast in Solo's case is that while several football players recently accused of assaults have been removed from the field, she has been held up for praise by the national team. 
Um, Masur went on to say that she would have been benched if she were a marginal player and that she needs to be held out of competition if female and male athletes are ever to be treated equally. I um, vote for this as the number one most unctuous column of 2014. I thought it was really bad and omitted information that readers really should have had. And it really makes you wonder why that information was omitted, such as, for example, that her husband happens to be this guy, Jeremy Stevens, who, as a football player at uh, the University of Washington, was accused of rape, was never charged criminally due to a classically bad investigation, paid out in a civil suit, was accused of domestic violence against his girlfriend, then girlfriend, Hope Solo, who he married a day later, kind of similar to uh, the Ray Rice case. And this, none of this was mentioned in this column. And it was all about how, you know, Hope Solo needs to be, you know, taken as seriously as the NFL treats its players. It was unbelievable. Stefan? What's unbelievable in your mind about it? The idea that she should be suspended? No, I thought the column was unbelievable in its unwillingness or I don't know what you want to call it. And, to connect the dots here. or Right. It's saying... This Contextlessness. Just saying that this needs to be treated like the NFL has treated players, like as of last week, that this is so out of character with, with what pro football is doing and that it's an aff- affront to women's equality that Hope Solo isn't being offended and not mention the football connection and the fact that Hope Solo was allegedly assaulted by a former NFL player that she then married. It kind of complicates the issue (laughs) a little bit. I don't think it complicates the issue much in terms of whether we think Hope Solo deserves to be punished in some way. I've had to like explain to my 12-year-old daughter what Hope Solo did and why she was playing in a game that we went to see here in Washington in her in the professional women's soccer league. I don't like Hope Solo. She has a track record of being a jerk. You know, she was suspended as she called out Brianna Scurry back in 2007. She was kicked off of the World Cup team after making those some comments about her. She's been involved in sort of one dumb thing after another. I'd written a piece a few years ago about this little Twitter fight that she got into with Brandy Chastain, who had criticized the women's national team on television. She is intemperate. She is kind of rude. Um, she got into a fight with her, what was it, Dancing with the Stars partner that was publicized. She doesn't seem like a very bright woman. Great goalkeeper. Again, terrific athlete. Love her on that team. Got to win the World Cup next year. Does it matter that she is a woman in a woman's sport where many of the fans are 12-year-old girls like my daughter? The women's soccer, the U.S. women's soccer team embraced this idea of role modelness. Back in the 1990s, the current team does not really have the same impact or, you know, and it's impossible that they would have the same impact as Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and all of them. But they do still play this role and it's hugely important and it's going to be hugely visible in the next year. Are there other goalkeepers that are good and could help the U.S. women win the World Cup next year? Absolutely. So people make decisions. Do we want Hope Solo to be the role model and the the face of the uh, one of the faces of the U.S. women's national team, or don't we, Stefan? I feel like you might be confusing the issue by saying that she's not likable. What does that have to do with whether she she should be suspended for this particular act? Why should we care if she's a jerk or not? You're right. I mean, in in the the context of evaluating her as someone that I want to support as an athlete, her likability factors in, and then what she's accused of factors in. Should it factor into the determination of whether she should be suspended or how much she should be suspended for? No. But in my sort of athlete 
analysis and whether I want a poster of this woman in my daughter's room, yeah, it does factor in. Yeah, Josh, I agree with some part of your argument that to compare or to hold up the NFL as anything of an exemplar on any social issue, especially this one, is ludicrous. And while it would have been proper to put uh, Solo's background in that context, and I'm really quite willing to believe that she's um, a lot of what she does is an outgrowth, or maybe the reason she even married Jeremy Stevens has something to do with her psychological makeup, and it's all very complex. And, and her family background, you know, she right, talked about abuse and alcoholism and, in yeah. her upbringing. Right, right. In her it's biography, all, it's all part of it's all right. It's all part of the stew that makes up a person and gives a person pathologies. Uh, this is me uh, analyzing from afar, but at least makes her a very troubled person. However, much of that argument could probably be said about a lot of the male abusers. Certainly, Adrian Peterson. Like we've heard a lot about the whoopings that he got from his uh, father and other boys who were on his football team, whose their fathers beat them, and they all said it was nothing compared to the uh, beatdowns that Adrian. Peterson would get at the hands of his father. So that to me isn't that different. And I do think that what are the facts here? The facts seem to be that Hope Solo assaulted a woman, happened to be her sister, assaulted a minor. He happened to be a 17 year old boy. But those facts alone would say that she's an abuser, a domestic abuser. Something should be done. I have no problem with any of that. My problem is with the point scoring that seems to be going on here and with people saying repeatedly, you know, why is nothing being done about Hope Solo? It's when a double so standard. Being done it's in the a, NFL, no, it's a double standard. And beyond, that, and beyond that, this, you know, three weeks ago, this was an issue that was, you know, nowhere in the context of sports. So all of a sudden, every other organization, including something that's a little less established, uh, well-funded, and has resources, the Women's Professional Soccer League, as compared to the NFL, they need to get on it and have the best practices that the NFL has been botching. Okay, I totally get you on that. Yeah, what my problem is, is that People who don't actually seem to care about the particulars of this case, which are complex, and I would have no problem with U.S. soccer suspending her, keeping her off the field or whatever, but only seem interested in it just to say that people are being hypocritical for talking about the NFL and domestic violence and why don't you care about Hope Solo? When in fact, violence, domestic violence by women against whether it's other women or minors is not really a a huge societal problem on the order of domestic violence by men against women. So just go fuck yourself. (laughs) Sorry about that. No, no, no. I mean, I absolutely. No, Josh, it's perfectly fine. You're suspended for a half. (laughs) All right. That's reasonable. I wanted to talk about baseball. Can I, can I be back in for the baseball segment? Clean up your act, buddy. Maybe we'll take away an after ball from you next week. All right, for our last segment of today's podcast, uh, joining us is Ben Lindbergh. He writes about baseball for Grantland. Before that, he was the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus. He continues to be the co-host, along with Sam Miller, of BP's daily podcast, Effectively Wild, which we highly recommend. Welcome, Mr. Lindbergh. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, Of course. And it is your time to shine, Ben, because we're heading into the last week of the regular season. And even though, well, maybe it is not exactly your time to shine because these pennant races are not as exciting as maybe we thought they would be a couple weeks ago. And the National League, it's basically all locked down. Nationals, Cardinals, Dodgers have all clinched spots. And the Pirates and Giants are looking like the wildcard teams. The AL is a little bit more interesting. Uh, The Orioles and Angels have clinched their divisions. Royals, Tigers, and A's also looking good 
for the playoffs. Mariners and Indians still in contention. So some drama in the last week. But I'd like to start with the A's, who on August 15th had the best record in baseball. Now they're 10 and a half games behind the Angels in the AL West, and they could still miss the playoffs after falling off a cliff in August and September. So Billy Bean makes these big trades, kind of go f- go for the World Series this year trades. Got John Lester, Jeff Samarja, and Jason Hamill for the pitching staff. And if you look at the stats, those guys have actually been pretty good. So what is wrong with Oakland? And can we figure out some way to blame Billy Bean and advanced statistics for it? Well, my highly analytical answer is that their players haven't played very well, which is kind of what it comes down to sometimes they've what gone from, <laughs> that that matters <laughs> it does it does it you know they've gone from scoring five something runs per game before the Cespedes trade to three something runs per game since then and obviously that's been a, a big part of why they haven't played as well and so people draw the the cause and effect relationship there right everything was working well and then Billy Bean had to go and meddle with everything and now he's screwed up the chemistry, and, and the whole lineup is underperforming. Of course, you can't pin that whole decline on Cespedes. I mean, no one player contributes that much to an offense. Even a PED's Barry Bonds couldn't cause that kind of offensive decline, and Cespedes is just sort of a, a nice, above-average player, right? And the players that they got when they traded their, their young guys and Cespedes have been great. John Lester has been fantastic since they acquired him. So that's really not it unless you want to read some sort of metaphysical quality into what happened to the A's after those trades. You know, the whole lineup was so demoralized by losing Cespedes that they've all underperformed. You kind of have to to go into that mumbo-jumbo area to pin it on the trades. Really, it's just that some guys who were playing really well in the first half have not played well in the second half. A guy like Brandon Moss, who surprised everyone, has not hit at all in the second half. And Derek Norris has not hit at all. And Coco Crisp has been dealing with some injuries, and he hasn't hit. And a couple of the starters who were really reliable early on, Sonny Gray and Scott Kazmier, those guys have been bad. Yet, despite all that, the A's still have the best run differential in baseball. And normally, that's the the metric, that's the measure that correlates really well with winning percentage, with how well a team plays. And they've scored the third most runs in the league. They've allowed the second fewest. And so over a seven-game series, you'd think that the A's would have about as good a shot as anyone. The problem now is that they're going to have to get past that wild card game where anything can happen, but they have at least put themselves in the position of having a top-of-the-rotation starter, no matter who goes in that game, who can match up well with whoever their opponent will be. So can we read, can we read Billy Bean's mind and conclude that the intent was to have a rotation that could eliminate some of the uncertainty of the playoffs? I think so. That was part of it. And, you know, analysts have been looking at factors that might contribute to postseason success for years now, and we really haven't found anything that correlates with it other than just how good you are in the regular season. There doesn't seem to be any one specific quality that leads to postseason success, and maybe it's a silly question, right? Because the the games are still won and lost the same way. You still have to outscore the other team. So it makes sense that there wouldn't be some magic bullet in October. But one of the, the possibilities that people have proposed is having a good pitching staff or a top-heavy pitching staff, right? Because you can kind of compress your, your starting rotation and your bullpen in the playoffs because there are more off days. You can give a higher percentage of your innings to good pitchers. And so the A's now have this depth where they also have top of the rotation guys who can go every day, but they don't ever have to dip into kind of a fifth starter type. And 
And over the years, there hasn't really been any correlation with, you know, having an ace or having a top-heavy rotation and being good in October, possibly because the teams that do have those aces push them really hard in the playoffs and start them on three days rest and four days rest, and maybe that negates any advantage that you gain from giving those guys more of their innings. The A's have the advantage of being able to start a good guy in every game. So you would think that if there is any edge there, the A's would have it if they can get past that playing game. They do have a good run differential, but it's not as good as it was before the Cespedes trade. And they do have a bunch of slumping guys. Coco Crisp is hurt. Even Donaldson has been rather bad. He had a huge walk-off last night as we record this. But I think his on-base percentage is like lower than 300 in uh, September. Have you ever looked at if there's something to the team slump phenomenon, the contagion phenomenon? I know that you've largely discounted protection in the lineup. But when guys go bad at the same time, is it just that we notice it more? I mean, if one guy was going bad and everyone else was picking him up, then we wouldn't uh, think of it. But when four guys go bad, that's when we notice the slumps? I think that's all it is. I mean, hitters will tell you that hitting is contagious, that you can pick it up like a common cold or something from a bunch of guys hitting or not hitting, and then it spreads throughout the clubhouse. There doesn't really seem to be any evidence for that, just as there doesn't really seem to be evidence for individual hot and cold streaks. You know, a hitter who has been hot lately is not really any more likely to be hot tomorrow than, than anyone else, than a guy who's been in a slump for a month. So it's hard to, to see something like that. And, you know, Josh said this was my time of year to shine, but in a sense, it's almost the opposite. This is the year, this is the time of year when the analysis kind of goes out the window and baseball turns into a small sample sport. Right. And, you know, people start attributing all kinds of crazy qualities, and we all just kind of go collectively crazy a little bit. Cause Pe- people fans... are paying the most attention to you when your analysis right. is, the, is the dumbest. <laughs> this, <laughs> exactly. this is the point. This is, this is the time for you to field media requests, but also to offer the least good advice. <laughs> <laughs> right. Baseball fans' brains are, are wired for this, this long season for every individual game. doesn't matter all that much, and suddenly they all matter very much. And so we try to try to pinpoint these qualities that matter a whole lot more now. And, and really, it's hard to, to find anything that, that does. And so you get these strange beliefs like the spoiler team at this time of year, right? The team that has been bad all year, but is suddenly dangerous because it's motivated Houston Astros! By, <laughs> right, the idea of... The state of the Texas. Of, Mike, you can help me out with the hot take. How does it go? The whole idea that somehow... This idea bad. that somehow the Astros have ca- are able to turn it on now when it doesn't matter. Dog, give me a break. Exactly. It's like, how spiteful are we saying that these players are, that they haven't been motivated by their own chances of winning all year? But <laughs> nah, they're loosey-goosey. They're playing loosey-goosey, Ben. <laughs> exactly. And yet the same people who talk about spoilers will also talk about strength of schedule and how some teams have an easier schedule the rest of the way than some other teams have. So, so it's a, it's a strange time of year where analysis suddenly kind of goes out the window or is ignored, and we read a whole lot into things that we probably shouldn't. So the, the team that could give its success-starved fan base the most sucker this uh, September and October is the Kansas City Royals, who could make the playoffs for the first time in, I think, forever is the technical, 1985. The technical term. Um, mm-hmm. But their manager just seems so bad, so bad. He, Ned Yost, is famous for getting fired in September by the Brewers when they were in first place um, because of, you know, they were on a long losing streak and some questionable decisions that he had made. He recently said, 
after they lost a game on like a grand slam in the sixth inning, it was like, man, we were so close to getting to the seventh when we could bring in our best reliever. We were just one out away, not seeming to realize that you are allowed to bring in a relief pitcher whenever you want to bring mm-hmm. in the relief pitcher. To allow relief, if you will. <laughs> exactly. To a starving fan base. So my question is, how out of character is Yost's belief in like, I'm going to have a seventh inning guy, I'm going to have an eighth inning guy. And also just how much does it actually matter? Like we notice when they lose a game because purportedly he didn't bring in the right guy at the right time. But is it in fact that big a deal if you have a seventh inning guy and an eighth inning guy? Does it all kind of come out in the wash? Well, he is actually the most rigid in terms of having a a bullpen hierarchy that he refuses to stray from. And I wrote about this last week, kind of comparing and contrasting his use of Wade Davis, who's been one of the best relievers in baseball, with the Yankees' use of Dylan Betances, who's been even better. And Betances has kind of bounced around, and Joe Girardi has put him in in the fifth inning or the sixth inning, you know, whenever he was most needed. Whereas Davis, until recently, had not pitched outside of the eighth or ninth inning. He's just a classic eighth-inning guy, and Yost will not deviate from that more so than any other manager. The thing is that that probably doesn't matter a whole lot if you have a deep, good bullpen, which the Royals do. So they have a really good 7th, 8th, and ninth inning guy. And even though they will not use those guys in any other inning, they also have some pretty good middle relievers, too. And so even if you're not putting the best guy in in every situation, there's usually a good guy in there, and the difference between one and the other is not as huge as you might think. So I don't know that it has cost the world all that much. There have been some glaring examples where you can probably pin a, a loss on Yost or at least part of one. But on the whole, I think it's probably hard to say that he has cost the Royals that much. And clearly, they, they are probably going to make the playoffs despite him. So that goes to show you that if he is one of the worst managers in baseball, then that's not a deal breaker. Yeah, not, not a deal breaker, but you can make fun of him, which is always nice. Loved your comparison of Pedro Martinez's 2000 season with Clayton Kershaw's current season on the website Grant Land. Very, very funny. Please tell us why Clayton Kershaw is not as good as everyone says Clayton Kershaw is. And that's probably a mean way of saying it. Right. Yeah, it was not meant to be an ill-spirited. I was not trying to take Kershaw down a peg so much as I was trying to take Pedro up a few. Basically, their surface stats are more or less the same. You look at their ERAs, you know, Pedro's in 2000 when he was sort of at his peak or close to it, and Clayton Kershaw's now. And so various people have made the case that Kershaw is having the best season in Pedro or a better season than Pedro. And really, although the surface stats are the same, everything was stacked against Pedro. And most of those things were in Kershaw's favor, right? So the, the run environment is just drastically different. There were almost no starters other than Pedro in 2000 who had even what would be a league average ERA today. And it's, you know, the the testing that has kind of taken TDs out of the game to some extent, all the other changes that favor pitching over offense, you know, uh, heat maps and, and, and sophisticated advanced scouting and defensive shifts, all these things that favor pitchers. And just the ballpark, you know, Pedro pitching in, in Fenway Park, Clayton Kershaw in Los Angeles, all these things are factors in the favor of pitchers. And so you really can't compare, or you can compare, but it's not a great comparison Pedro to any other pitcher since. You know, Pedro in 1999 and 2000 was really a a peak that we haven't seen since and may not have seen before. Oh, I wanted to ask you how much, I know you have a connection to baseball prospectus and you can't answer for all of it. How accurate do you think their uh, odds making 
forecasting apparatuses. I guess the only close ones are right now they say Kansas City is about a 70% chance and uh, Seattle's about a 21% chance to make the playoffs. Uh, so is that do we stick by that? Because I have to say that if I wanted to make money and someone put a market on it in May of every year, I would just bet everyone who is around 20% because it does seem that early on they don't have a great grasp of who's going to make the playoffs. But they still give you as solid a number as they do now. Right. I mean, early on, you're you're going almost entirely based on your preseason expectations for that team. So if someone is, you know, in the, the proverbial best shape of his life and shows up in spring training and he's suddenly playing at a new level, then the projections aren't really going to capture that. At the same time, that can be very deceptive. We can buy into these small sample successes or failures that we probably shouldn't. And so I do tend to trust the odds. And, you know, there are uh, alternatives and other websites that they use mostly the same process, but it's, you know, it's based on how good the players are projected to be, what their playing time is projected to be. And so often there are teams that will defy those odds, whether because, you know, someone comes out of nowhere and takes a bunch of playing time that we didn't expect or someone gets hurt. All of these factors can, can contribute to some team defying the odds, and every year some team does. But I think on the whole, they give you a, a pretty good picture of who the best bets are. Say, so, you know, the Brewers, who looked like a, a presumptive playoff team for most of the year. Their chances of, of winning the NL Central never really went above 60% or so, even mm-hmm. though they had a, a substantial lead at some point. And, and that was because, you know, before the season, we sort of expected the Brewers to be a 500 team roughly around yeah. there. And yeah. they have been, other than April, where they had just an incredible bullpen performance that they haven't sustained. They've been 500 more or less since then. And so, the odds kind of capture that that quality that is easy to ignore. Yeah, though, like on June 28th, Milwaukee was an 87% chance to make the playoffs. Now they're a 3% chance. I understand why that happens. It's still galling. It's still galling <laughs> that they had that epic collapse. Ben, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we're going to invite you back for a bonus segment, I think. We'll, we'll see how we feel in a couple minutes. But maybe if you want to stick around... I will accept this invited. Okay. Um, And Ben Lindbergh is a writer for Grantland. You can listen to him on the Effectively Wild podcast by Baseball Prospectus. Ben, thank you very much. Sure. Thanks, guys. All right. It is now time for After Balls. And Mike wanted to celebrate an athlete who has perhaps not gotten the due that he deserves in the press this week. And that man's name is Antonio Blakeney. Mike, can you introduce us to this young man? Antonio Blakeney is a five-star guard. That is the most stars a guard could have in high school. And he was going to the University of Louisville until he looked down. Not within, not without, but down at his feet. Because the University of Louisville has a big contract with Adidas. But Blakeney plays for a successful AAU team. What's the first day in AAU, by the way? Amateur. His amateur athletic union team is sponsored by Nike. His coach on that team is sponsored by Nike. And when he realized he'd be playing for an Adidas school, not a Nike school, he said, I'm going to go elsewhere. He has plans to visit Missouri, Oregon, LSU, and Kentucky, all Nike schools. Nikes are great shoes. Can't mm-hmm. complain. Uh, nothing, wrong, nothing wrong with college sports. <laughs> what is your Blakeney, Mike? So as Derek Jeter travels around the country, he will be honored. 
He will be feted. He will be rewarded for being the man he is. And this reward will often take the shape of a garish, oversized chair in the shape of a glove. Yes, that was his gift uh, before he played the Red Sox at Yankee Stadium from Rawlings. So he goes to these teams. He goes to these places, companies. Everyone wants to give Derek Jeter gifts. So now I will tell you what the good gifts and the bad gifts are. I will base my rankings on three things. One, will Derek Jeter ever use it? You have to get into the head of Jeter. No, he owns a bunch of houses. But still, there's only so much wall space and shelf space on the great room of said houses. So that's criteria one. Criteria two is I looked at the pictures of when he's getting the gifts, and I tried to detect the eye crinkle, which shows that he's really smiling. So I tried to see which ones tickled Derek Jeter the most. And the third is just empirical. Like, what's the value of it? What's the uniqueness of it? If you could buy it off the shelf, Derek Jeter could probably buy it himself. So totally failing on the gift-giving spectrum is what the Houston Astros gave him, a giant Stetson hat. He could buy a giant Stetson hat. A pair of cowboy boots. Well, they are painted in Yankee pinstripe, and they do have the Yankee logo, too, and the New York Yankee logo on the other one. So you could custom make that. The fact is Derek Jeter would never custom make that. And as I looked at his eye crinkle, he didn't seem to be too crinkly. Also, a totally failed gift, a giant paddleboard from the Angels, and a giant kayak from the Rays. There is no way that Derek Jeter on vacation will be paddling on a giant number two pinstripe paddleboard or kayak. He's going to donate that to some foundation who themselves will try to auction it off. No one wants this garish, disgusting, ugly kayak. The the uh, Detroit Tigers gave him a couple things that you could say are unique, like a couple of seats from Tiger Stadium, but they're really not that unique. Anyone could buy seats from Tiger Stadium. They get, did give him a series of framed pictures, and one is from his high school days in Kalamazoo, so that's at least personal. The Reds gave him signed Dave Concepcion and Barry Larkin uniform. Why? I don't know. They were middle infielders. Here have some uniforms of other guys. Cleveland gave him a guitar, a pinstriped guitar, because Derek Jeter is very known for being the teammate of Bernie Williams, who plays guitar. That one really makes no sense. A lot of teams gave him a $10,000 check for his foundation, like the Royals and the A's and the Twins. The A's also gave him a personalized bottle of Napa Valley wine. Derek Jeter could buy a bottle of Napa Valley wine. The Twins gave him second base. Another team gave him second base. And the Cubs gave him the number two from their scoreboard, their actual, you know, hand done scoreboard. So that was great. But I, I think the worst gift he got was a frame picture from President Bush. I just went by eye crinkle on that one. Didn't quite like it. And I think the best gift that Derek Jeter got was Boog Powell gave him a basket of crabs. I know Derek Jeter took those back to the clubhouse, and the Yankees just tore through those crabs with abandon. Um, <laughs> Jameis, insert Jameis Winston joke. Well, we're going to give our listeners a little insight into the podcast magic. We recorded our bonus segment this week before the afterballs, and I did a little intro about Derek Jeter gifts, which I mentioned a gift that you did not mention, Mike. It's an extra no. bonus gift to our bonus segment. But a third gift that you did not mention, and I did not mention in that intro— that I'm shocked that you did not mention was that Cleveland gave him a Lego portrait of himself. Lego portrait. And the Mets gave him a tiled portrait from Subway Tiles of a number two, which is good, but he's never going to use it. He can hang it on the wall. Going to donate He's got it. A, like a $7 million, 10,000 square foot mansion in St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. It's true. Lego portrait. Obvious winner. Stefan, what is your Blakeney? He's going to wear those boots to his job at the publishing house. This is what he's going to do. Jeter, Jeter Publishing. <laughs> Jeter Publishing. 
Employee of the week has to wear the Jeter boots all weekend. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the Asian Games have begun in Incheon, South Korea. 45 countries, 13,000 athletes, 439 events, 36 sports and disciplines from Sipaktakra to Wushu. Actually, from aquatics to Wushu, but I want to say Sipaktakra. China, Japan, and Korea are going to win all the medals, but the Asiad is very exciting for people in Asia. It's also exciting for the rest of us because every so often at one of these regional sports festivals, something ridiculous happens that deserves notice, and that's something at the 2014 Asian Games is the women's team handball team of the Maldives. The Republic wow. of the Maldives is the smallest country in Asia, both in size and population. It's a chain of 26 atolls, 400 miles southwest of India. Fun fact, the Maldives has the lowest, highest point of any country in the world, seven feet, one inch. Timofey Mozgov of the Denver Nuggets is as tall as the tallest point in the Maldives. This is the seventh Asiad for the Maldives, and the country has sent a delegation of 200. Very impressive, because the Maldives has a population of 400,000. It's the equivalent of the United States sending 15,000 athletes to the Olympics. Training is tough in the Maldives. The nation's Environmental Protection Agency just this month said an analysis of the seawater in an area where swimmers practice contained bacteria, waste, and oil, and that swimming there could cause skin disease and infection. Earlier this year, the national badminton team had nowhere to practice after the sports complex was closed because the building was ruled unsafe. Still, the Maldivians are competing hard at the Asian Games, swimming, track, badminton, beach volleyball, soccer, and for the first time, women's handball, which is great. The more team handball playing countries in the world, the better. The more women athletes, the better. The more women athletes from Islamic countries, the better. Some of the Maldives women play in long sleeve shirts, long pants, and head coverings. The Maldives national women's handball team ticks a lot of boxes. Go Maldives national women's handball team. They're in Group B with Japan, Kazakhstan, Hong Kong, and Uzbekistan. They opened on Saturday against the wily Uzbeks, who were sixth at the last Asian Championships. Tough match for the inexperienced Maldivian side. They lost 57-7, to but they did manage 41 shots on goal, and their star, Fatima Rishma, netted five goals. But then came the Japanese, third in the Asian Championships, 14th at the last Worlds. Final score, Japan 79, Maldives Zero. That's got to rank up there with some of the biggest blowouts ever in sports. Georgia Tech over Cumberland, 222 to nothing in college football in 1916. The Bears over the Washington team, 73 nothing in the 1940 NFL championship game. And I think this, might, this one might be the best parallel. Slovakia over Bulgaria. Slovakia over Bulgaria in the 2010 Women's Olympic Ice Hockey Qualifying. 82 to nothing. Uh, Despite the similar scores, I got to give it to the Maldives over Bulgaria because, to be clear, it is very hard not to score a goal in team handball. The halves are 30 minutes long. There are a lot of shots. Players are awarded those penalty shots all the time. The Maldives didn't earn a single penalty. Japan was 9 for 9. Apparently, no national team has ever before been goose-egged in handball. 79 was, not surprisingly, a world record margin in women's handball. But in the tradition of great coaches everywhere, the Maldives skipper Abdullah Salim acknowledged that the team wasn't very good, but he had an excuse. Our physical conditions are low overall. We have injuries. 40% of the players are injured. We need lots of improvements to the national team. I think we will try our best in tomorrow's match. Tomorrow's match was played today, Monday. The Maldives not only tried their best, but they did score seven goals against Hong Kong, which scored 41. Worth noting, Hong Kong, not very good at women's handball. They lost 40-13 to to Kazakhstan, 37-8 to Japan. Two notes, though. You can order on Amazon a Maldives handball stainless steel coffee mug. 
Only eighteen ninety nine while supplies last. And I learned a lot about the Maldives at minivannews.com, which mm-hmm. is widely read by both local and global audiences and is internationally regarded as the Maldives' most reliable news source. Minivan means independent in the national language, Divehi. Now, you mentioned that it has the highest lowest point. We in America have the lowest highest point, and that was uh, last season's The Bachelor. Which I think they get in the Maldives now. They love it in the Maldives, The yeah, Bachelor. Yeah, they just... Or maybe they, they just should post, shoot an episode they, of The Bachelor in the Maldives. They just it is, it is the it, it is the honeymoon resort of the region. Josh, what's your Blakeney? All right, since you took my Maldives women's handball after <laughs> all, I'm going to do a quick audible here. Mike, I think that you just did on this topic. I don't want to spoil it for our listeners, but it's good to know that we have the same taste in music. So for this after ball, I want to take you back to March of 1993, a time in which Snow's Informer displaced a whole new world from the hit Disney cartoon Aladdin as the number one song on the Billboard Hot 100. But watch your back, Canadian reggae guy Darren Kenneth O'Brien, a.k.a. Snow, because a pair of songs are racing up the charts. Here is the first of those tracks, by the band 95 South. And here is the second, released about a month later by Tag Team. Now, I could do a whole hour-long radio documentary about how in 1993, 95 South and Tag Team released the songs Woot There It Is and Woomp There It Is, respectively, both of which went platinum. And I probably will do that hour-long documentary someday. And by someday, I mean tomorrow. But for now, I am not going to focus on the fact that Woot There It Is was the answer to the musical question, Where the Booty At?, or the Tag Team recorded Adam's Family Woomp for the soundtrack to Adam's Family Values, or that there was an internet rumor that a young Barack Obama could be seen in the Woomp There It Is music video, or that there was a Love's Diaper ad featuring the song Poop There It Is. And I will certainly not be reading from the July 1993 New York Times article headlined, In America, There It Is, in which Bob Herbert wrote, A little girl in Atlanta was striving for an A on an English test. When her graded paper came back, she jumped up in the classroom. Woot, she said. There it is. No, Stefan. You're not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Today, I will focus on the brief, heady period in which Woot, there it is, and Woomp, there it is, became staples of stadiums and arenas. I remember Woot, there it is, playing on an endless loop at the Superdome during Saints games of the period, but it was not just a New Orleans thing. After the Chicago Bulls won the 1993 NBA Finals, the Chicago Tribune reported that the fans chanted, Woomp, there it is. At a rally to celebrate the Bulls championship, Stacey King said, Every time we played in Madison Square Garden, all we kept hearing was, Go New York, go New York, go. And yeah, they're gone. Woomp, there it is. And the 1993 National League playoffs, the Phillies beat the Braves to make it to the World Series, with fans of both teams chanting, Woot and Woomp. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that a double-decker bus parked outside of Fulton County Stadium played Woomp, there it is, incessantly, while 10,000 people at the Philadelphia airport chanted Woot to welcome their team home. Fans of Riddick Bowe chanted it, Cowboys fans chanted it, Eagles fans chanted it, everyone chanted it. And the Woompers 
from Tag Team proved more adept than the Wooters from 95 South at cashing in on it. It was not just that Adams Family song. In 1994, when the Rockets of Houston won the NBA title, Tag Team recorded a new version of the song called Hoop. There it is. I get it. <laughs> you can't get one past Stefan. Uh, I could not find the song on YouTube or anywhere else, and I get very upset when things like this are not on the internet. This Houston Rockets remix of Wimp There It Is is exactly what the Department of Defense was imagining when it started the ARPANET project. But thankfully, some kind soul uploaded the song to the Rockets Bulletin Board Clutch fans, and so I was able to hear such lyrics as, 94 is the year, jump, jump, rejoice, Akeem slamming over here, Kenny stealing over there, Mad Max and Sam kicking derriere. <laughs> but... I don't want you to just hear me say but, it. Yeah, now, I will play enough. you out of this afterball with my favorite verse from Hoop. There it is. All I can say is that Otis Thorpe is involved. Party people! Point blank, it's like money in the bank. Otis Thorpe to the hole like a Bradley tank. Rock the house, clutch CD, once a win. Rip it, can I flip whole reason, man? Slam dunk, get you it. Winning and ride that Houston Rockets winning slide. Give that sit, come on, come on. Hoops, there it is, I'm done. I think party people have gone uncommented upon for too long. There was a time when party people were respected, sought after, courted, if you will. I mean, it got to the point where it wasn't just party people in the house who were sought after. Demographers would go beyond the house to find party people that they theretofore had not realized were potential party people. There were good party people outreach. Now party people, they're just taken for granted. It's time for party people to rise up and to join me, as I say, work. There it is. <laughs> we love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. Also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating and a whoop or a woot or a wark. Are you Come, telling me the Baja men never did woof? There it is. <laughs> I certainly don't think so. I would know Missed about it about that. Missed opportunity. Become a fan of Hangup and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Volo. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zelma Beatty. Thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.